welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. We are, we are here in the final week, and Holy Week is special. It's special in the scripture, and I invite you to take it slowly and carefully in our time, because it's, it's easy for us to want to celebrate on Palm Sunday and be excited and be happy and, and then just fix our eyes on Easter and then show up and be excited and yell, go from yell, yelling Hosanna to yelling Alleluia and to kind of skip through the week. But understand that the last week, Jesus' last week in ministry, in the Gospels, takes up a huge portion of their writing. This last week is important, and it's told carefully and intentionally by each of the four Gospel witnesses. And so I invite you to not just fix your eyes on Easter, but to go through Thursday and Friday and to walk through the week, to spend each day reading scripture. And I'll be sending out devotions that are available to you uh, on our website or through the email. And so I, I invite you to spend time really processing the week, taking what the gospel writers are offering to us to heart. And Mark's gospel is particularly political in its proclamation. And I know you maybe you hear the word political or politics and you think, oh, come on, pastor, don't go there. Well, I'm not going to go there in the way that we often see and hear it in our time. But I do want to focus on how this gospel message spoke to the contemporaries of our author we call Mark's day. Because they lived in a very crazy time of political unrest, particularly in Israel and around Rome. And what we find is there's a very clear, bold, and direct message stated in Holy Week, particularly on the triumphal entry of Jesus that we've just heard. We heard a big chunk of the passage, but we're kind of focusing on the middle part. And it's it's very clearly saying something to the wider world. It spoke to the people then. It speaks to us now. And that's what I want us to kind of focus on and work on in this time. The disciples, they know Jesus is the Christ. They have proclaimed that earlier in the story. They know that he's the Messiah, the King, but they're having trouble wrapping their heads around what that means. Um, They want to see power and authority and kingdom language through their lens, through their understanding, through their own desire. And Rome and Israel and every other kingdom around at that time They focus on power and authority, which ranks people. Some people are more important than others, right? And it may be as simple and obvious as, well, Caesar's the most important, and then there's Caesar's, you know, leaders, and then there's the lords of the areas, and there's the Roman citizens, and then there's everybody else, right? That's how Rome does it. We do this. We do this, too, in our own understanding. Uh, Israel did this in Jesus' day. And every nation tells the story ours included, how their nation, their nation is the one chosen by God. Theirs is the one blessed. They have the divine power and authority behind them. It is they who are special. Every nation ever has told that story. Egypt told that story. 
Babylon told that story. Persia told that story. Greece told that story. Rome told that story. Even Israel told that story. Uh, But that's not the story. That is not the story that there are certain people worth more than other people, that there's one group that is held in higher regard than the rest of the groups or any other group. The disciples who have been following Jesus, who seem to know something about Jesus' identity, they're still thinking in this way. We hear it in the story where they want to sit at the right and left. They want to be in the higher positions of power, beneath, just beneath Jesus, but above everyone else. And And they're right at the end of the story, and they are still buttonheads with Jesus' idea of power and authority. So we still tell the story how we we are better, right? Don't we? Whatever the we is, and maybe it's as a nation, maybe it's as a gender, men or women, or maybe as white people, or maybe as Christians, that we are better than other people. Or maybe simply as Hoosiers versus Boilermakers, right? Or, or Wildcats or Cardinals or whatever. We, we find ways to kind of lean into this kind of story in a way that can be fun if you're talking about sports, but in a way that can be dangerous if we talk about race, nationalism. And we've seen the damage this story can do. You know this story. We're right in the middle of it. We're right there with the disciples who are struggling. And I think that's the point of telling the story this way. Because the original hearers of Mark's gospel would have been right there too. So how, how could we be any different? Right before today's passage, a scene unfolds where someone is given sight. And they're asked, what do you want? I want to see. It's a strange line, isn't it? I want to see. Do you want to see. And Bartimaeus could have said, I want to see what I think I will see. He didn't. He said, I, I want to see. And Jesus gave him sight to see things as they are. Maybe Bartimaeus was disappointed. He could have been. Maybe what he had imagined in his mind, however he might have imagined it, maybe what he actually saw didn't quite live up to it. Or maybe if he if he had no concept, had no expectation, and suddenly he could see, he could experience the pure joy of that sight, right? The story is placed right between the disciples fumbling through trying to figure it out and the triumphal entry on purpose. We're invited to see. Do we want to see things as they are, or are we still trying to see things by our own expectations? And that's a tough question. And before you answer too quickly, really start thinking about what news channel you turn on. <laughs> do you watch the news channel that offers the, the opposite opinion of you, or do you find yourself wanting to be reaffirmed, right? Or what church, what churches have you gone to? Have you ever moved churches, and what was the reason? Was it because you weren't hearing what you wanted to hear, and so you went to find a place where you could hear it? Right? We do this, okay? You're no different than me, than anyone else. We do this. We struggle. The disciples did it. That's the point. So this parable about the blind Bartimaeus and and receiving the sight, it's a parable for the disciples. It's a parable for us, for all of humanity. Do you want to see? Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem with a clear and bold and direct message. But then the people there won't get it. 
Why? Because they don't see. They came, they came to see what they expected to see. They could see it somewhat, but they lack the whole vision because they're so focused on what they want to see. They're hanging on to their own version of the story like we do. Mark tells the story in such a way that clues us in that Jesus kind of made some preparations. He knows where the cult is going to be and what to say and what the people will be okay hearing. It's like it's as if it's set up. He knew there was an unridden donkey. He knew what to say. He knew what direction to enter into Jerusalem because entering from the Mount of Olives was actually reenacting a prophetic vision. This prophetic vision from Zechariah was understood that the Messiah, the anointed king, the word Messiah, the word Christ, all means the same thing. This son of David, this Davidic heir that they'd been waiting for was going to enter Jerusalem from that direction, from the Mount of Olives, and was going to come and reestablish Israel as a mighty kingdom of its own, was going to rid them of all foreign oppressors and was going to reestablish them as a great nation, make them great again, right? Jesus rides that ritually unridden donkey and all that it symbolizes. He rides it like the kings and princes and people that have ridden donkeys before because when you're riding into a place with an intention of peace, you ride a donkey. People honor him as the one who comes, they shout. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and requests of, save us, you are the source of our saving. Hosanna rings out. They spread out greenery, they spread out their clothes for a royal welcome. Everything has been predetermined to say something very specific, that this is the return to power, but not in the way you think. Maybe people knew exactly what they were expecting of Jesus in the moment, or maybe they just got caught up in the excitement of all that was happening and the symbols and what they were seeing and hearing and talking about. But the people gave a clear message, and, and they're joining in. They gave a clear message to the Roman-occupied Jerusalem that Pilate was there to symbolize the power of Caesar in Jerusalem. And what they're saying by bringing Jesus in in this way is that Caesar... The superpower of this world is not our king, nor is he our hope. God is our king, and God is our hope in the Messiah, the son of David, the one who comes. They said this, right? They, 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 they grasped part of the story, but they, they had to have been disappointed because Jesus did not fulfill the expectation. If you read Zechariah... You read of great earthquakes and, and power coming in in this forceful way and enemies dropping. Jesus enters the city just like it was foretold. That part was expected, except he didn't position himself high up on a high horse. He actually didn't even position himself on an adult donkey, did he? It was a cult. It's a cult. And that may seem insignificant, but think about it. A cult is little you know, you'd be on a high horse, right? We use that saying, you're on your high horse, because you're above everyone else, and you show your power. And if you're coming in with a threat intention, you come in on a horse. If you're coming in with a peaceful intention, a donkey, but still an adult donkey, you would be higher up. You could look over the people as a sign of your power. But when you're on a colt, your feet are probably dragging along the ground. You are probably at eye level with everyone else. Jesus comes in in this symbolic way, 
but with a very different message. Not as someone who's come to lord over them with power and authority like they might expect. Not someone who's going to lord over the oppressors like they might expect. The power Jesus brings is not the power of Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or Israel or even America. It's not like our power at all. But he does enter the city. And that is triumph. That is good news. He enters, except he doesn't overthrow Rome and lead a violent revolution, because that's not, that's not the way it works with the one who comes. That may be the expectation that we have of the one we're hoping comes, but the one who actually comes, it's not how it works, which is why in a few short days, people won't be heralding him anymore. In fact, he came in, rides in this, this kind of funny way on a colt, looking people in the eyes. No one's impressed of someone riding in on a colt, but yet he does. He walks in, he looks around, and because it's late, he leaves. There might have been bated breath. <gasps> What's going to happen next? What's he going to do? And he looks around and leaves. He demonstrates the most anticlimactic entrance in the history of triumphal entries. And it's laughable. Everything about it looked like a Roman triumphal entry because they'd seen it many times. Caesar or, or even, even Pilate rides in on a horse and everything's proud and power and authority is clear. All the ingredients are there in this entry except not the power and authority you might expect. It looks somewhat like it, but nothing like it. Mark doesn't even stop there. The following passages, which we heard one today, is about Jerusalem being rejected and destroyed altogether, symbolized in the fig tree. It's about the temple being torn down. It's about conflict between our version of power and authority and God's. It's about God versus Rome. It's about death being the ultimate expression of power that the world has to offer, and of God's power overcoming it, love and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation. That's what's coming. It's about Jesus. Jesus' obedience to God as a sign of the real power, the power which is to serve, to be a slave to all, which is what Jesus is going to do. It's about the power that, that's of God that looks foolish, foolish to everyone else, even us, if we're honest. Maybe it's not coincidence that April Fool's Day always seems to fall around the time of this story uh, with an ancient tradition of people being regarded as foolish and us attempting to make fools of each other. We, we have the opportunity to step back and accept that we've, we're still foolish. We still crave power and authority by a way that looks nothing like what Jesus accomplished. The story of our faith is quite foolish, isn't it? We are the people who claim that there is life and death, right? We serve and give allegiance to a king who was conquered, crucified, and killed by the power of his day. Now, we don't stop the story there, of course, but that is the story. Rome proved that it had the ultimate power 
when it crucified Jesus like it did every other revolutionary leader. We still try to wield power and authority as human beings that is more about standing tall and considering ourselves more worthy and wielding it through force and violence. And we celebrate our group when it does that, whether it's a nation or just a world or whatever. It's true, isn't it? We can admit that much. This is the week that we face ourselves. We face ourselves as individuals. We confront ourselves as a body. We face the fact that we have continued to see but not understand. So maybe we still don't see. We have been given sight, but yet we still don't see clearly. We are still hanging on to our version of the story. Amen? Friends, we all do this. You are not alone. You're not. The more we try and convince ourselves otherwise that we don't do this, the more we stand convicted. Amen? We're waving our palms today and offering our shouts of Hosanna, and we are offered the chance to stop shouting for the one we expect and instead offer our praise to the one who comes. To the one who comes. And also the reason he comes. We are presented the opportunity to confess our self-allegiance, our desire for power and authority by our own definition as individuals, as a nation, as a community, even as a church. Because right now our church, our denomination is fighting over who's right. That's not the way of the one who comes. Through God's grace, we are offered the chance to repent, to rethink, to reorient and redirect ourselves, to redirect our expectations of God's Messiah because we want so badly for Jesus to fit our agenda, to support us in what we think so that we may, we can repent so that we may put that down and truly welcome and receive the one who comes and all his coming means. We're being called to rend our hearts to let them break, in fact, to tear them open because we should be heartbroken at what we see within ourselves in the body and in the world around us because only by truly confronting ourselves, only by facing the cross can we put our ultimate faith and trust in the one who comes to save us. Jesus Christ invites us to follow him on the road to death by truly tearing our hearts open as a sign of our faith and trust in him. You know, it's something in the story true then, and I hope that we can see that it's true now, that while we should be rending our hearts, often its agenda and pride and nationalism and blindness and sin that await the one who comes. And you know, he comes anyway. He comes anyway. You know why? Because we're worth it, he says. We're worth it. He will allow us to throw all of our violence at him. 
He will not resist. He will let the full weight of our sin and our self-centeredness reject the human one, the Son of God, who comes to give us fullness of life. He will allow it because God loves us. And there's no clearer understanding or image or vision or message of that than what is going to happen this week. You are loved, my friends. Even in your mess, you are loved. Even us, as the church, as a nation, even in our mess, we are loved. In fact, everybody is. Everybody on this planet, even in their mess, they are loved. We might not quite see that yet. Maybe we don't want to. But we are invited. We are invited to receive sight. We are invited to see clearly the path ahead and to follow Christ on it. And while we continually live life as if it's not true that everyone on this planet is loved, that we are not loved, that you are not loved, we can repent. We can repent right now that Jesus Christ invites us to set down our vision, our definition, our understanding of everything, to set down the, our conviction that our dead-end path is the path we should be walking so that in our repentance we can turn and follow him and let him lead us to life as it truly is. Friends, as we enter this week, let us confront ourselves. Let us ask God for sight. Let us tear our hearts open. Let us break ourselves down as we face the result of our sin when we look upon the cross this Friday. Let us hold nothing back. Let us stop pretending we're any better than we are so that we can truly claim the promise that, is, that has been given, that has been on display for us through Holy Week, that is coming and that we will celebrate in a week from now. Rend your hearts. Claim the promise, friends, and let us do it together. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit, you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.